why you picked chocolate, usually because it's the tastiest. Um, welcome to St. Barnabas. My name's Chris. Uh, I have met many of you, but some of you I haven't. I'm training to be a vicar down the road at Ridley Hall. I'm in my second of three years. Um, I'm having a great time doing it. It's such a joy and a privilege and a pleasure to be in Cambridge when the weather's like this. I've literally got no work on this term, so I've been playing tennis and croquet and golf and... Uh, uh, cricket. It's been wonderful. Uh, in fact, I was um, telling Dan, my highlight of the week was I've been playing tennis with my friend for about a year now, and for the first time on Friday morning, I managed to beat him. So I'm feeling very... Uh, thanks very much. Uh, I feel strong in my sporting prowess. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, I took three wickets when we were playing cricket as a, a college. So uh, I'm loving summer at the moment. Uh, brilliant. There we go. That's my introduction. Um, uh, uh, I want to um, tell you a little bit more about me. Um, uh, I'm married to a wonderful girl called Rebecca, and we have this eighth-month-old boy called Theo. Um, in fact, uh, let me show you a picture of Theo right now. There we are. This is us on uh, last weekend sitting in Starbucks in Centre Parks enjoying uh, a coffee. Uh, this, I, I posted this on my Instagram feed uh, with a little caption, an early morning coffee with my favourite micro-human being. And I got pretty good number of likes, I can tell you. You can follow me, if you like, at Chris Balding. Um, <laughs> anything, anything to prop up uh, my, you know, small bit of popularity in my head. Um, and, you know, from the face of it, you would think we had a smashing weekend in Centre Parks. Uh, but the reality is, this was at half past seven in the morning. This had been my fourth coffee of the day, because he had not slept through the night. He had not slept through the night. Do you want to know why? Because when we arrived at Centre Parks, he fell off the bed and smashed his face on the floor. So there was screaming and crying and blood and Becca's in tears and Theo's in tears and we've got a bunch of friends arriving for the weekend and I don't like centre parks anyway and these aren't my friends, they're Rebecca's friends. And so all in all, it was a bad weekend. In fact, it was so bad we left early. But this picture would make you think that we had a great weekend, and I had a wonderful time uh, with Theo, and he's rallied now, he's fine, he's much better, there's no lasting damage, no bruising, his teeth are okay, fear not. Uh, but I just want to... We're thinking tonight about the storms that we encounter in life, and so often we can present this image that everything's okay, that everything's wonderful, that we're enjoying coffee with our eight-month-old. You're probably not enjoying coffee with my eight-month-old. That would be weird. <laughs> but we present things that are true, but not the whole truth. And as I hang out with more and more people, I'm discovering that most of us are just about managing to get through the day. We are all dealing with our own storms in one way or another. And as that, by way of introduction, shall we turn to our passage? If you've got a Bible on your phone, take your phone out. If you don't, or you'd like an actual physical copy, there are some at the back. The hosting team would love to go and get you one. Um, do, thanks, Chris. Do stick your hand up if you want a physical copy. Um, if no one wants a physical copy, that's a lot of... Oh, good, Tim does. Uh, and these guys down here do. Fantastic. So we're in John 6. Um, John 6, we're reading from verse 16 to verse 21. Verse 16 to verse 21, John 6. 
I'll give you a moment to get out your Bible. It's a good idea to have it. We're going to um, look at it together in a moment, discuss in uh, little groups some questions that are kind of come up on the screen. So make sure you can see a copy, because otherwise you're not going to be able to take part in the discussion. John 6, uh, verses 16 to 21, page 1070 in your red pew but not pew Bibles. Let me read. Oh, and it will also come up on the screen as well. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This is the word of the Lord. Wonderful. Wonderful. So, as is our custom in this series, as we're going through John, some four questions are going to pop up on the screen. Do you want to break off into groups of two or three or four? and just have a conversation about what these questions pop up in your mind. This is not because, you know, the preacher's lazy and we just need to fill another five minutes because we've only, you know, got 15 minutes worth of content, but because you're only here for an hour a week. The rest of your lives you spend on your own without, you know, some fool at the front telling you what to think. Instead, this is a way for you to engage with Scripture and work out what God is saying to you through his word on your own. You don't need us here to mediate God's word to you. That's why we do this. Not because it's a fun little exercise and it's slightly different, but so that you can unlock scripture for yourself. So five minutes, I'll draw us back together. What does this story say to you about people? What does this story say to you about Jesus? What does this story have to say about you and who needs to hear this story? I'm not going to ask you for your responses, um, but let's have a conversation to practice this unlocking of scripture together. Let's go. Wonderful. Should we gather back together? If you've got any burning insights, do come up and tell me at the end. Um, I would love, love to hear what your thoughts are about this passage. Um, But let me give you some of my thoughts about this passage. One of the best things to do when opening a chunk of scripture is to work out what's going on, uh, what has happened beforehand, uh, so we can work out why certain things are happening Uh, So what's gone on beforehand? Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. Olga, last week, expertly uh, opened up this passage of script to us. Um, If you know anything about how they counted people back then, it wasn't 5,000 people that Jesus fed, it was 5,000 men, because if you weren't a man, you weren't counted, because you didn't count. That's not true, it's just 
what happened 2,000 years ago. So in reality, it was probably about 20,000 people that Jesus fed, and Olga preached a fantastic message about the surprising nature of God. And Jesus fed 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And the disciples have been given the unenviable task of clearing up after a picnic for 20,000 people. Can you imagine that? The crisp packets spread across the floor would be insane. And they fill up 12 baskets with the leftovers. They weren't crisp packets because, you know, fryers hadn't been invented 2,000 years ago. Um, And... uh, The crowd are so impressed by Jesus, they're so impressed by Jesus, that they want to take him and make him king. They want to uh, kind of overthrow the Romans and put Jesus on this throne. And Jesus disappears, because that's not what he's about. He's not about claiming an earthly kingdom. He's not about overthrowing the Romans. He's about bringing about the healing of all things, the renewal of all things. He's not about to start a new empire. He's about to bring about the heavenly reign of God. And so he's off somewhere. He does this magic disappearing trick that he often does if you read throughout scripture. And he's off somewhere in the mountains praying. You see that uh, just before the passage we read in verse 15. And so the disciples are a bit stumped. They don't really know what to do because Jesus hasn't left any instructions for them. He hasn't said, right, I'll see you in a couple of days or, you know, do this or keep doing this or off you go there. He just sort of uh, heads off and they don't know what to do. And instead of waiting for Jesus, they blindly rush into a boat and out onto the lake. And you can understand why. They want to get away from all these crowds. 20,000 people is a tiring number of people to be around. They're put in a back-breaking day, picking up all the litter. They're probably quite tired. They've been out in the sun. They're exhausted. Jesus has skipped off. So they take things into their own hands. They don't wait for Jesus to tell them what to do. And this is usually where it goes wrong. When the disciples don't wait for Jesus, when they try to do their own thing, it always goes wrong for the disciples. And Jesus comes back and often says something to the equivalent of, you idiots. When they uh, try to keep the children away from Jesus because they're worried that he'll crowd him and touch him, he goes, you idiots, bring them to me. The children are the most important ones. Or, or, or in the, even the previous story, the feeding of the 5,000, one of the disciples goes up to Jesus and said, we'll never be able to buy enough bread. We'll have to send them all off. And Jesus is like, no, you idiots. I'm going to do something impressive. Watch this. The disciples are stupid. That's essentially the story. But, amen, indeed. But they're not just stupid. And they're not always stupid. And I want to pick something up out of what the disciples do. In my life, the times when I have made the biggest mistakes, when I'm tempted to sin the most, when I do things without seeking Jesus' face, is when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. All things that the disciples might be feeling. Can I offer you some advice? In those moments where you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, halt. H-A-L-T, halt, stop. Do whatever you can to fix that problem. Eat some food, calm down, find a friend, have a nap. Because it will seriously reduce your propensity to do something stupid. To find yourself out in the middle of a lake, in the middle of a storm, with no way of rescuing yourselves. Stop, fix it, then make a decision or take an action. 
But back to the passage. Verse 16. When evening came, the disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Now, I don't know how your geography of first century uh, Capernaum really is, but of course you all know that this lake, the Sea of Galilee that they're crossing, sits in this bowl of mountains. You've got mountains all the way around the side, and the lake sits in the middle. It's about seven miles across and about three miles wide. And the strange thing about the geography, of course, you all know this because you're experts on the geography of Galilee, is that storms would just blow in over the mountains and sit on this lake and blow around because they had nowhere to escape to. They would just build and build and build. So this storm that they encounter is not unusual. The winds would whip up, the waves would get bigger, and this, it would just churn up the lake. And the disciples are stuck in the middle of this storm, in the middle of the night, in a boat that isn't like the boats you might be thinking of or boats that you've encountered, not like the punts on the river cam that you might have seen. They're not highly engineered pieces of precision uh, design. They're, not, they're barely rowing boats. They're barely uh, good at floating because there aren't the bandsaws and there aren't the impressive tools that we have today to build good boats. And it's tax collectors and some fishermen, but predominantly people who wouldn't have known how to sail out on this boat in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a lake. And then there's another element that we need to add in here to really get what's going on in the minds of the disciples. And it's this. The sea, in Jewish understanding, was chaos. It was all about chaos. You see this in the start of uh, the scriptures in Genesis where it talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of the deep. When the writer of Genesis is describing what happens in the start of creation, he is saying God creates out of chaos. That water and sea has always been about chaos. You see this in Revelation 22 at the end of Scripture, where it tells us when John is describing the heavenly city in the book of Revelation that there will be no more sea. It's not because God doesn't like windsurfing and water skiing, but because he's saying that there is no more chaos. Chaos has been stopped, it has been defeated, it has gone completely. And so you've got these petrified disciples in the middle of a lake, in the middle of a storm, in a rickety old boat, at night, in a completely chaotic environment. And you've got to remember, this is the year 32. So there are no fog lights, there is no sonar, there is no GPS, there are no radios, there's no way of knowing what's around you. They have no idea where they're going, and it's utterly pitch black. They're absolutely petrified. You can imagine them pulling at the oars, straining away to get to the bank before the vessel capsizes or sinks. There's water raining down from above, there's breakers crashing over the bow of the boat, and they are tossed back and forth by every wave. And then suddenly, they see a figure. Is it a ghost? Who is it? What is it? And they're probably more afraid than they've ever been before. You see it at the end of verse 19. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, and they were frightened. And what does this figure say? What does Jesus say? It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
Jesus, in the midst of their fear and panic and confusion, tells them, do not be afraid. While the storms are battering them, Jesus tells them, do not be afraid. While they're freaking out, he is walking on the water to meet them in the middle of their panic. In the other gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark, Peter gets out of the boat. And you have to ask why John didn't decide to tell us about Peter getting out of the boat as well. And it's because for John, this story isn't about Peter's faith or lack of it, or whether Jesus is helping us to walk on water wherever he may call us. It's because it's about the peace of the presence of Jesus. Friends, I don't know what storms you're going through at the moment. I don't know what things are threatening to capsize and drown you. Maybe it's exams or deadlines or work pressure or relational stress or fear of the future. Maybe it's some decisions that you've made that you've come to regret. Maybe it's none of those or all of them in some way together. I don't know what you're struggling with at the moment, but I do know there is peace in the presence of Jesus. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not worry. He will meet you in your storm. He doesn't wait for the storm to die down with the disciples. He doesn't wait for them to row to the other side because he knows they will never make it. He doesn't come, uh, he meets, he comes and meets them in the storm. And he will come and meet you in your storm. The thing that is threatening to overwhelm you, he will come and meet you in it. He will tell you, do not be afraid. I am with you. Because in his presence there is peace. In his presence there is hope and life and joy and salvation and life and laughter and freedom and a future. In his presence there is peace. It is I. Do not be afraid. He comes to bring peace because in times of fear and feeling overwhelmed, we do not operate from a place of security and a place of abundance. We shut down and begin to turn in on ourselves. We see everything as a threat. And that's not a healthy place to be in. That's not how God designed us to live. It's an easy place to get entangled in habitual sin. Instead, Jesus' presence, we see the antidote to this. We see Jesus rescuing them out of that situation. You see, at the end of our reading, they arrive to shore straight away from the moment that they invite Jesus into the boat. He rescues them out of the situation that is threatening to overwhelm them because he is with them. He is with you. And now it's even bigger than this. It's even bigger than just his presence drawing, uh, casting out fear. Because if you're a first century Jew reading this story, the phrase, it is I, isn't actually it is I. If you are a Greek scholar, you will know that the words are ego, amy, which doesn't mean it is I, it means I am. And if you know anything about Jewish history, you will know how significant that is. Olga touched on this a bit last week. At the beginning of the passage last week, it says it's near Passover. And Passover is an incredibly important time for the Jewish community. If you've ever seen The Prince of Egypt, that fantastic cartoon of, I don't know, the 1990s, 1980s maybe, 
Uh, this tells a story of what's going on at Passover. It's all about Moses. It's all about God rescuing his people out of Egypt. The Israelites, God's people, are stuck in slavery, and God, through Moses and the ten plagues, gets Pharaoh to let his people go. But the first time Moses meets God is in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. He sees this burning bush, and he goes, why the heck is that bush burning? And he goes and looks at it, and he has this encounter with God, and he asks God, who are you? What is your name? And God says, Yahweh, which means I am. You can see what's going on here. God calls Moses to be the leader and to challenge Pharaoh, and God sends the ten plagues. And the last one is the Passover plague, where the angel of death kills all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, except those who have spread the blood of a lamb over the lintel, the top piece of their door frames, over which the angel of death passes over. So Pharaoh lets the people go. But he doesn't actually let them go because he chases after them and they get to the Red Sea and they have no way forwards and no way backwards except God parts the sea for them and they pass through the sea. He saves three Israelites from the coming army. So connect this I am with Jesus' power over water. You can see why this is even more significant. Jesus, by walking on water and using the phrase I am, is connecting himself to the God of the Israelites that they have worshipped for generations. He's showing he's not some sort of magician, but rather he's intentionally saying, I am the one who delivered you out of Egypt. I am the one who has power over sea and the storm. I am the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who rescues my people, in whom there is safety, the one who sets you free, the one who brings you out of slavery, the one who casts out your fear. I am, do not fear. So how does this stuff change our lives? It's very simple. When the storms of life threaten to overcome us, pursue the presence of Jesus. Relentlessly pursue it. With everything you've got, chase after it. Carve out time and space and energy and effort and brain space and anything you can to chase after the presence of Jesus. In the midst of exam season, it can feel like there's too much going on to pursue the presence of God. In the midst of a heavy load of work, a load at work, it can feel like there's too much going on to pursue the presence of God. In the midst of family or financial or relational whatever, it can feel like there is too much going on to pursue the presence of God. But the storm will only get bigger and the fear will only get greater. Stop, look, listen, repent, see Jesus. He is closer than you think. A very clever old guy called A.W. Tozer said this, we need never shout across the spaces to an absent God. He is nearer than our own soul, closer than our most secret thoughts. The stupid thing is that when we think we're on our own, battered by the storms of life, Jesus is beside us. Pursuing the presence just means turning our eyes to realize he is there. Friends, I would encourage you 
to pursue the presence of Jesus, as in his presence, fear is driven out. May you be drawn by peace, not driven by fear. So when the storms of life are raging, when the water is coming over the bow, when fear and anxiety seem to threaten to drown you, know that Jesus comes close and says, I am. Do not fear. Shall we stand and I'll pray if the band wants to come. Father God, I thank you that you are here by your very presence. That in your presence we have peace. Would you help us to know that you are close to us? You are very present by our side. Would your perfect love, your perfect peace, drive out all fear in our hearts now? Amen.